can never sing too much about the cross and about the sacrifice of Christ on that cross. You know, it's, it's the cross that makes the Sermon on the Mount have real meaning. Apart from the cross, there is no meaning to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you may find that a bit of a strange statement because the Sermon on the Mount was preached a couple of years before the cross uh, came into to being. But everything our Lord says in this sermon that we've been looking at now for the last 27, 28 weeks has been contingent upon the fact that the cross was coming. Everything Jesus did, everything Jesus said was done with a view to the cross that was coming. Knowing that it was through the cross that sin would be paid for. It was through the cross that his people would be redeemed. It was through the cross that we would be set free and be given life in Christ Jesus. What a, what a glorious thought that Jesus' mind from the very beginning, Jesus' heart from the very beginning was set on the cross and looking toward the cross. Take your Bibles and look with me at Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 7 through 12 today. We'll find again a very familiar verse in this text, and one again that many times is misunderstood and misused and thought of in an incorrect manner. But here Jesus is really in this passage coming back to a thought that he had, he gave us earlier when he was giving us the Lord's Prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer back in chapter 6, verses 8 through 13. I find it encouraging that Jesus talked about prayer there and then he went on and talked about anxiety and, and worry and he talked about getting the beam out of your own eye and, and, and rather than trying to get the speck out of your neighbor's eye. And then he comes back and goes to prayer again. I mean, a lot of my sermons, I feel like that's the way I do. I get going down the road, and I think, oops, I, I meant to say something else about this back here, and I go back. So I've got good precedent for doing that biblically. The Lord did it himself because he comes back to prayer in this passage. After talking about everything else that he does about the Christian life, he draws back to this concept of prayer again. And he has... That ending verse that we know has, has been called the golden rule by many, many people is kind of the summation of all of that, and it's kind of interesting to see. Follow along as I read these verses. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf, it's a loaf of bread, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If then, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give you what is good to those who ask him? In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets." We, we sort of alluded to the fact all through this study of the Sermon on the Mount, there are basically two ways of approaching this sermon. And, and they've been approached by people throughout all the generations, ever since Jesus spoke them, in one of two ways. The first way is kind of seeing it as a, a collection of moral precepts. As a matter of fact, I was reading one commentator somewhat to the left just this past week, 
And his comment was, you know, if I had my way, we would take Matthew chapter six, uh, 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and we would extrapolate those from Scripture, and that's all we would ever dwell on. We just do away with all the other scripture because this is the essence of the moral and the ethical teaching of Jesus. And so if we would just extrapolate that and let the church dwell on that, we'd be very much better off, according to this man, if we were just to take those three chapters and nothing else. That's a moralist view of the Sermon on the Mount. It's viewed in the way of saying if we'd just work real hard and obey everything that's in these verses, everything that's in these three chapters, if we would just strive with all our might to keep these as best we could, we would be better off, the country would be better off, our culture would be better off, and we'd be better off with God. The point is Jesus is recognizing here that this is not, he's not giving us a moralistic standard here. He's not saying, boy, if you'll just try hard and do this, everything will be all right. And the moralists, when they come to this, they come with a view that's really dominated by a fleshly presumption about the goodness of man and the ability of man and a very shallow view of the Sermon on the Mount itself. This is deep stuff. And to look at it merely as a collection of moral teachings that if you'll do real, try real hard and live by them, everything will be all right, is a very simplistic and really unbiblical way of viewing this. The other view... And what I think is the correct one of looking at, the, at the, the Sermon on the Mount approaches the sermon very humbly with a deep sense of the need for God's grace, with a deep sense of realizing I can't treat other people always the way I want them to treat me, and I will at times do things that I would never want anybody to do to me. And, and so we recognize that I will never be, as Jesus said in the fifth chapter, verse 48, you know, be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. I mean, there's no way that I, in my own ability, by pulling out my own bootstraps and saying, I'm going to be as perfect as God. There's no way I can do that. But the Sermon on the Mount, much like the law and much like the prophets, the Sermon on the Mount is given to show us our absolute inability and our absolute humble need for the grace of God to overcome our inability. They're not attainable in our own strength. It's undoable in our own strength. It must come only by the strength that comes through Jesus Christ and through God's grace, through him and through his work on the cross. But in verses 7 through 11, particularly, Jesus is describing the way a man or a woman prays when they are in Christ. He's describing the way a man or a woman prays when they understand what the Lord's Prayer is all about. And what he's saying here is, I want you to pray the Lord's Prayer. I want you to pray the model prayer. I want you to pray in that way, in this way. I want you to understand that it's not just a rote thing. I want you to understand it's not just going through some motions and saying some words and thinking, boy, if I get all these words right, then everything will be okay. Jesus is coming back and saying, listen, if you are in me, if you are a believer, if you have known the grace of God in your life, this is how you ought to approach the Lord's prayer. This is how you ought to approach your prayer life every single way. And he, it's a parallel to what James, the brother of, or the half-brother of Jesus, said in his little epistle. 
If you remember in James chapter chapter 4, verse 2, he said, you know, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And what James is saying is, you want something and you go about it in all the wrong way. You try to attain it yourself. You try to obtain it yourself. You try to do all that you can to get what you lust after, to get what you want with all your might, and you never get it. You find, you find yourself murdering or hating. You find yourself stealing or, 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 or fighting and quarreling. I mean, all these things happen because of our lust and our desires that are driven in a non-biblical way. He said you don't have the things you need many times. You don't have the things you you want many times because A, you don't ask for them in the right way to the right person. And granted, sometimes the things we're wanting are not even the right things to want. And so we have to be very careful as we approach prayer. Now, there are some who approach these verses in 7 through 11, and they say, well, there it is. It's carte blanche. It's, it's just a carte blanche uh, statement for all of our material desires. Anything you want, if you'll just ask and seek and knock and, and do all this, you'll receive it. you got to get it. God's got to give you to it. There's a whole industry out there, religious industry out there, of word faith theology that says that's all you got to do. You just got to say it. You just got to name it. You just got to claim it. And God's got to give it to you. That's not what Jesus is saying here. In fact, if you remember that I, that I really believe, and most evangelical scholars really believe, that what Jesus is doing is he's going back to the Lord's Prayer, and he's saying, you ought to pray for these things in this way, that he's tying those two together, and it's urgent to understand that, if you're going to really understand what Jesus is saying here. I don't even think Jesus is concerned here primarily about material needs. I don't think Jesus is saying here, boy, you just, you just pray and, and seek and knock and pursue and beg and plead and, and, and God will have to give it to you at all. I think he's talking about us praying for the character that is consistent with the kingdom of God. Pray for the character that is consistent with the kingdom of God. Do you remember? When we started this series, we even named this series. You see it every week in your bulletin. The series is titled, Kingdom Living in a Fallen World. That's what Jesus is talking about praying for here. Pray for how to live in this fallen world. Pray for how to live godly and with right character in a world around you that is ungodly and in many cases has no character. You know, when we look out at our world, whether it's the political world or the business world or just about any aspect of our society, we all look at it and we, we sometimes are shocked at, at the distrust. We're, we're shocked at the, the sinfulness of it. We're shocked at the things people do for greed or for personal gain or whatever it is. They, we look at it and we say, Boy, I, I just can't believe that happened. Why not? Why can't you believe it? We're in a fallen world. And apart from the grace of God and apart from Jesus Christ, there go you and me. I mean, the truth of the matter is, the fallen world is worse than we ever want to give it credit for being. The world in which we live is in a much worse condition than, than we ever want to admit because we, we look out there and we think, well, it ought to be, they ought to be like us. 
Well, the truth of the matter is, you're probably a lot worse than you want to admit that you are. So you look at your life through rose-colored glasses, it causes you to look at the world through rose-colored glasses, and you fail to see the reality of the fallen world in which we live. So God says, Jesus says in this sermon, I want you to learn how to live as kingdom people. People who have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and placed in the kingdom of light. I want you to learn how to live as kingdom people. People who have been brought out of the kingdom of death into the kingdom of life. I want you to learn how to live as kingdom people in Somerset, Kentucky. People who have been brought from the realm that is ruled by Satan to the realm that is ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me tell you something. If you're in that realm, if you're in that relationship, it will make a difference in the way you live every single day. Not just this hour, 10.30 to 11.30 or so on Sunday morning. If you are truly in that kingdom, brought into light, given life, brought out of the rule of Satan into the rule of Jesus Christ, it makes a difference how you face your job. It makes a difference how you face school. It makes a difference how you face your neighbors and your family and everybody else. It changes you into a kingdom person living in a non-kingdom serving world and that's important to understand and we all if we're honest when we come before our Lord and we see his holiness and we see his righteousness and we see his glory we're all forced to, to face up to the reality that we are not all that we ought to be we do not function as kingdom people 100% of the time there are times when our character and our lifestyle is almost indistinguishable from that of those who are outside of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, who are outside of the kingdom of God, who have not experienced the grace of God. Our lives far too often look a lot more like them than they do what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, if we're honest. Now, I realize that we don't like to be honest about those kind of things because they hurt. And, and we'd rather just kind of not face it. We'd rather not think about it. We'd rather just say, yeah, but we're members of Grace Baptist Church or whatever. And that makes us okay. It seems that the scripture is saying, it seems that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is saying, listen, as you are growing in my grace, as you are experiencing more fellowship and relationship and walk with me on a day-by-day -day basis, you will be being transformed into a kingdom citizen that is different from just an American citizen. And We ought to see that happening in each of our lives. There are two things I think Jesus is saying here about prayer, and I believe they ought to be applied to our character. He says in verse 7 and 8 that we are to pray with persistence. We're to pray with persistence. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. There is a persistency there. There is a consistency there that drives us in our prayer life. Prayer ought not be just saying, Lord, uh, thank you, or, or I, I appreciate all you've done for me, and I, I want your name to be glorified. I want you to be holy, and, and, and 
Father, give me my daily needs and forgive me of my sins as I'm forgiving others and, 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 and lead me not into temptation. And your will be done. Amen. And that's your prayer for the week. Maybe for some of us, that's your prayer for the month. No, Jesus says there is to be a persistence and a consistency about your prayer. Ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. I remember Spurgeon talking about these two verses one time. said, you know, it, it, this is almost the picture of a young child. A young child who is at home with his mother. And he needs something. And so he, if his mother is present, he asks for it. And he just asked her outright. We've never, you, you may be like me, you may have a hard time remembering back that far, but I don't think when I was a child I had any real problem asking my parents for just about anything. They didn't always give it, but I could ask them for anything, and I just felt really confident to do that. Jesus said with your heavenly Father, you ought to be like a child who asks their parent for whatever you go to him and you ask. And, and Spurgeon said, this is like a child ask who ask the mother who is present. But if he needs something and the mother is not around, then he goes seeking after her to find her. Maybe she's out in the yard. Maybe she's in the garden. Maybe she's gone into another room. But he goes and he seeks. And so there are times in our life where we, see, we sense that we must just seek after God, our Heavenly Father, to ask him. There is that persistency. There is that effort to do it. But Spurgeon said there are some times when the mother has gone into her room and has closed the door. And when that is the case, you know where she is. The kid knows where she is. And just saying something may not be heard. And so what does he do? He goes to the door and he knocks. And he waits for his mother to answer the knock. And then he asks again and seeks again. And if she closes the door... If you've got a child, you know if you say maybe later and you close the door, it won't be long till there's a knock again at the door. Jesus, that's the way you ought to pursue your prayer life for godly character. That's the way you ought to pursue in your prayer life for Christ-likeness. You ought to be asking. You ought to be seeking. You ought to be knocking. You ought to be pursuing you ought to be saying, Lord, this is an area of my life that I'm struggling with. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's jealousy. Maybe it's envy. Maybe it's greed. I don't know what it is. But Lord, I know that is not pleasing in your sight. And it makes me look more like a kingdom of the world than it does a, king, a member of the kingdom of God. Lord, I want you to... to to stretch me on that. I want you to strip me of that. I want you to replace those non-kingdom character qualities with character qualities that are consistent with you, with the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to take away the fruit of the flesh and I want you to put in the fruit of the Spirit. That's what Paul called it. If you turn over with me to Galatians for just a minute, which we'll get to on Sunday nights eventually in our study of Galatians. But if you turn over to Galatians chapter 5, you remember everybody knows the fruit of the Spirit. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, I'm sorry, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
But most of us don't realize that he's contrasting what the, the fruit of the Spirit is with what the fruit of the flesh or the deeds of the flesh is. And that's back in 19, 20, and 21. Takes more to list that. He said, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying those are things that are totally inconsistent with the kingdom. Those are the kind of things you ought to be praying that God will strip from your life and replace with the character of Christ, which is the Holy Spirit. Now, I know it's easy to look at and say, well, I'm, I'm not being immoral. And impurity, well, I let some impure things into my mind, into my eyes. Sensuality, well, I kind of dwell on that a little bit. You know, it's kind of hard not to with all the television and movies we go to and books we read and magazines. You know, yeah, some of that kind of slides in. But idolatry, well, I don't have any little idols sitting around anywhere. No, but what's, what's gripping your life? What is it that's gripping your life above everything else? It's an idol. What is it that's pulling you away from your walk with Christ? What is it that's demanding your time that you ought to be spent worshiping and you ought to be spending praying, you ought to be spending in his word that's pulling you away from it? I mean, that's idolatry. And you can go on and on and on and take these apart. Outburst of anger, disputing, dissensions, factions. I mean, all these things. Paul says, and, and I think Jesus would totally agree in the sermon, that these are the things that are, the deeds of the flesh. They're the deeds of the kingdom of darkness. They are the fruit of being outside the realm of the Spirit, the realm of the kingdom of God. Jesus said, "Those are you need to be praying, asking, seeking, knocking. You ought to be pursuing the fruit of the Spirit that it would replace the deeds of the flesh that still hang on even after our conversion." And then verses 9, 10, and 11, he talks about not only are we to pray with persistence and consistency, but we are to pray with confidence, with assurance. He says, or, or what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? If a man's son comes to him and he's hungry, he says, Dad, give me some bread? You're not going to say, sure, son, and pick up a rock and say, eat this. It's just inconsistent with the love of a father for a son. Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? Same concept. You're not going to give something that's detrimental when they're asking for something that they need. Well, if you then, being evil, that is, if you still have the flesh battling within your life, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven Give what is good to those who ask him. In other words, if you ask God for self-control, he knows how to give that. If you ask him for patience and for peace and for love and for kindness and those fruit of the Spirit, he not only knows how to give them, he desires to give them. But it's a matter of prayer. 
Some people look at prayer and say, well, you know, Jesus said back in chapter 6 that, that we, don't all, we all not pray like the Gentiles do, repeating everything, meaningless repetition. Don't be like them because your Father knows what you need even before you ask Him. So some people say, well, I don't need to be persistent. I don't need to be consistent in my prayer because God knows I need it. I don't even have to say anything to God. Do you realize that that is a total misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying when he says, God knows what you need before you ask him? Some say, well, you know, if, if, uh, if God has already planned whether he's going to give it to me or not, if God already knows whether I'm going to get this job or that, why pray about it? I mean, it's already worked out in God's will. That is, a, that is an absolute cop-out of what the Christian life is all about. You see, God is glorified when you pray. I want you to think about that a minute. God is glorified when you pray. When you come to Him, when you seek Him, when you find your satisfaction in Him and in talking to Him, He is honored and He is glorified in that. And when you say, oh, I'll just do it myself, you're glorified, He's not. So we pray because we're told to. We pray because God says, that's what I want you to do. Jesus says, the persistent prayer can have confidence in knowing that our Father hears it. So we ought to pray. Prayer ought to be a major part of our life. And we ought to learn to pray for what is important. Learn to pray for what is right. And that's mainly godly character. Stuff that we pray for is temporal at best. Stuff that we pray for will be consumed by fire or destroyed by rust or stolen by thieves. All that stuff is not really all that important when you boil it all down. But what is important is godly character. What is important is, is living forth what has happened in your life. Paul said to the Philippians, and, and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He wasn't saying work for your salvation. He was saying what God has given you by grace, work it out now. Make it visible. Let it be seen that something has happened in your life to move you out of one kingdom and into the kingdom of God, to move you out of that life into a new life in Christ. And Jesus simply says you ought to pray about it. You ought to pursue it. You ought to be persistent about it. Then he comes to that last verse, which really most people would say doesn't have a lot to do with prayer. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But it certainly has to do a lot with what Jesus has been talking about here because he makes, us, he makes sort of a subtle statement that I think many of us miss. And I think this one verse destroys the moralist view of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, listen, in everything, therefore, Treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For that or this is the law and the prophets. Now, a lot of people want to pull that one verse out and say, there's the key. If I treat people like I want to be treated, if I'm nice to them and want them to be nice to me, then I'm right with God. But you notice he said that's the law and the prophets. That's a summary. That's a summary statement. One sentence about what the law and the prophets are saying. 
And Paul tells us in Galatians and Paul tells us in Romans and, and Jesus makes it clear in his own thing that we won't be saved by the law. So we can't be saved by this verse or by this sermon either. This is a matter of understanding that, yes, we who know Christ, we who have the grace of God in our life, ought to spend time ministering. We ought to spend time treating others as we want them to treat us. Now, I think it does tie in with these verses of seek, ask, and knock. I think he's saying if someone comes to you and they have a need within your fa family, your church family, your, your kingdom family particularly, someone comes to you and says, I have a need, can you help me? You don't say, yeah, here's a rock, go eat it. If they say, come, I really need some fish. I, I need some, well, here, here's a snake. Handle it a while. It's a Kentucky thing. Eastern Kentucky. You see, what Jesus is saying is this. Even in your walk with Christ, even in your prayer life, even in your persistence and your confidence and assurance before God as your father and you as his child, we have a responsibility to one another to care for one another, to minister to one another, to meet one another's needs. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If somebody comes to you and, and shares with you that they have a need and they're in your, your family, and I don't mean your birth family or your extended family, I mean your kingdom family your church family and they come to you and they say you know I I've got this hundred dollar debt that I, I need to pay and I just don't have it to pay and you're sitting there with a hundred dollars extra in your wallet and you just say oh well I'll be praying for you and you've disobeyed this verse basically because if you've got the means to meet a need of another brother and sister in Christ and you fail to do it, you fail to be a family member. You fail to be a, a kingdom family member. There, there is this do unto them. If you had a need, you'd want them. Now, I realize in our day and time, there's this pride issue that says, oh, I'll never, I can't do that. I can't take anything from anybody or ask anybody for anything. Oh, that's just stinking sinful pride. That's all it is. My best friend in ministry is a guy named Walter Price. And, uh, we were together this past week at trustee meeting, and he, he couldn't wait to tell me about their service two weeks ago today. And, and he said, we had a reverse offering. I said, you had a reverse offering? He said, yeah. I said, we, uh, we didn't take up an offering. We had elders who stood along the front of the church. I think there were four or five of them, and each of them had baskets with $1,000 in cash in them. And they stood there and just had a, a reverse offering. If you have a need, come and see one of the elders and they'll meet the need. Come take it out instead of putting it in. And he said the first few minutes, people just kind of sat there. We're not going to do that. And said he stood up and he said, we're not going anywhere until some of you respond. Because I know there's some needs in this body and you're just being too prideful to accept it. And that's going to destroy the whole thing. And so finally one person came up and said, well, you know, I, I do have this un... un unexpected medical bill that came up and it's it's eighty dollars I just don't have it and the elder gave her eighty dollars and she went and then another person came and finally another one and then finally Walter said look if it's not for you if you've got a friend or a relative that has a real need and you don't know how to do, you don't know how to meet it then they don't know how to meet it come and get it and take it to them 
We're not leaving until all this money's gone. I think he said that about $6,000 there. And uh, finally, it was all gone but $20. And somebody came forward and said, you know, we, we've got a, we've got a, I, I didn't want to mention this, but I've, I've just been put on a medication that's going to cost me, I think, uh, $300 a month. And it's going to do this and that. And so Walter told that, or one of the elders whispered to Walter, and he told the story. And then people started coming and putting money in the basket so it could be taken out of the basket for that person who had the need. And he said it, it was just remarkable. But see, it wasn't, it wasn't going to work. Because pride was too strong. Jesus here is saying, if you need it, ask. Ask of your Father first, but make your needs known within the body. Because we're to be a family. And then treat one another as you want them to treat you. You know, don't, don't do things to them that you wouldn't want people doing to you. You know, one thing I would never do. You, I've thought about that. Have you ever thought about that verse? Well, what is it I wouldn't want people to do? I mean, obviously, I wouldn't want people to slug me. I wouldn't want people to hit me in the face, you know, or, or run over me with their car. So I won't do that. This week, I thought, and only one person in here probably will understand what this means. But the one thing I would never do is send another person an anonymous letter. I just wouldn't do that because that hurts. And that leaves questions and that leaves doubts so just know that I didn't think I'd ever have to say that at grace but I just had to say it but understand what Jesus is saying here is that this is the essence of what the Lord's prayer is about and you take the Lord's prayer you pray the Lord's prayer consistently and persistently and confidently and then you live in relationship with one another and with God you meet one another's needs. You care for one another. You do for others as you want them to do for you. It's not how to be right with God, folks. That's the moralist view, and that's the wrong view. It's not how to be right with God, but rather it's how to live when you are right with God. It's how you live when the Spirit of God is so permeating your life that you can't help but do it. Let's pray. Father, it is into your hands that we commit our lives. You are our perfect heavenly Father who lives eternally. You are the one, O oh Lord, who has called us and gifted us and given us the grace to be a part of your family. We didn't earn it. Well, these songs we sang today were so clear in talking about our inability to earn it. But Father, we come because of your grace has drawn us. And Father, we're grateful for that. Father, I pray for men and women here this morning that don't know you. I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would 
move into their lives. Show them their need for a Savior. Convict them of their sin. And, and Lord, bring them in repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Bring them by your grace. Father, I pray for others that have just allowed old fleshly attitudes like Paul talked about in Galatians to linger on. They've never prayed about it. They've never sought your face about it because they're just just never thought about really making that a matter of prayer. I ask you this morning, Lord, to bring them and bring me to the point of doing that. Praying for my need for change in areas that I even have blind spots at, Lord. I pray that for all of us. Father, I pray for others that you're just doing things in their life right now where they're sitting and Lord, I pray you continue that work. And even as they walk out those doors in just a few minutes, that they will go with your spirit lingering and working in their life, in their heart, to shape them and form them into the image of Christ. Thank you, Father. Do your work in our lives, we pray. Amen.